Welcome. My name is Rob Verkirk, and I'm the founder, executive, and scientific director of the nonprofit Alliance for Natural Health International. In this video, I'm going to talk to you about a new model that we've been developing with academic institutions to help regulators implement scientifically rational, legally proportionate approaches to risk management of micronutrients like vitamins and minerals. The approaches currently being used or considered by European regulators are actually neither scientifically rational nor legally proportionate. Where they have been used, they stop people from being able to access vitamin and mineral supplements at doses that help support and promote their health in myriad of ways. Millions of people take food or dietary supplements on a daily or regular basis to help fill nutritional gaps with concentrated sources of micronutrients. The vast majority do most people a lot of good and only very few actually get harmed and that's if they take too much or too little. This possibility of supplements doing harm has been used as the main reason by regulators whose well-oiled revolving door with the pharmaceutical industry is no secret to try to limit the amounts and kinds of supplements the public can take. Among the questions we need to ask ourselves scientifically are how much is good for us and how much is too much? And if it's too much, what kind of harms are we talking about in which particular population groups? Are we talking about serious problems like liver toxicity or nerve damage or transient mild issues such as a loose bowel? These are the very issues that have caused many of us from nutritional scientists to trade bodies, freedom of choice campaigners and of course regulators sleepless nights for many years. In this video, we're going to take a closer look at what we call the micronutrient risk benefit or MRB model that NH has played a big part in developing. We argue it's the only available model that takes into account all the key elements necessary for developing both a scientifically rational and a legally proportionate approach. The MRB model is fundamentally different from the risk assessment models that have been used previously, which are essentially modified toxicological models. Like it says on the tin, these only take account of risk and in the process, they completely ignore any of the benefits. By considering only the risk side of the equation for a given micronutrient, regulators end up setting levels that avoid any kind of harm or risk however mild or transient, even to the most sensitive groups. But the end result is that everyone except these very sensitive groups, in other words, the vast majority of people, are denied amounts of the micronutrient they would, that would actually be beneficial to them. So if regulators apply the same approach to conventional foods, they'd have to ban all gluten-containing grains, or dairy, peanuts, even coffee, tea and sugar, because all these foods, and basically all foods known, have the potential to do some people some harm some of the time. Nutrients, unlike environmental toxins, do by definition offer benefits. These benefits often changing depending on the amount that's consumed by a given individual. There are also times in our lives when nutritional needs change, so different people need different amounts at different times. This makes setting hard and fast limits problematic if we're going to live in a world where people are allowed to manage their own health and exercise their freedom of choice. So 
If you're going to use a scientifically rational method that helps to decide what the maximum daily amount of a given supplement ingredient should be able to be consumed, that offers those who need it the benefits of the micronutrient, while also managing any safety issues responsibly, there are four important challenges one needs to overcome. So, first of all, we must recognize that daily intakes of a given micronutrient that incur benefits to some parts of the population will also likely incur risk to others. In other words, risks and benefits often overlap. So if a regulator uses a risk-only method to come up with a single maximum permitted level for a given vitamin or mineral in the process trying to eliminate all the risks even to the most sensitive to it, it will also stop very large numbers of people gaining benefits from this same micronutrient. This is exactly what's happened, for example, in Germany with the German authority, the BFR, landing up with ludicrously low daily maximum permitted levels for many vitamins and minerals. For example, for vitamin C, it's just 250 milligrams per day. For vitamin B6, just 3.5 milligrams. And for zinc, just 6.5 milligrams. For zinc, this is even lower than the EU recommended daily intake or nutrient reference value for, from all sources, which is 10 milligrams per day. Any clinical nutritionist or nutritional scientist would tell you that there's ample evidence that people needing to improve the function of their immune systems or raise their energy levels when they're fatigued benefit from levels that are much higher than this. Not only that, three years into a pandemic, these micronutrients at sufficient levels of intake are needed by a lot of people. Looking now at vitamin C specifically, the BFR has taken into account that a 1,000 or 2,000 milligram single dose of vitamin C may cause some people, when they're not dealing with an infection, when the body's requirement increases 10 times or more, to have a loose bowel. Hardly a serious adverse effect. But the BFR takes this lowest level of 1,000 milligrams, then, because it knows the data is somewhat uncertain, applies a four-fold uncertainty factor to it to get to 250 milligrams. While this might seem on the surface like a highly precautionary approach that protects the public um, safety, it isn't when you consider the risk it causes to those who now can't consume the amounts they need. So, or you consider that an appropriate risk management approach would be to recommend via labeling that those who are most sensitive should consider dividing their daily dose, which just offers all the benefits and eliminates the risk of a loose bowel. The second problem with current risk assessment methods is that they typically offer a single value for each micronutrient, regardless of the form. But vitamins and minerals used in supplements come in many different forms and have different bioavailabilities and therefore different risk-benefit profiles. The EU Food Supplements Directive, for example, currently allows 13 vitamins, but they can be used in 47 different forms. It also allows 17 minerals in 144 different forms. Many of us have experienced what happens when we take too much, say, magnesium oxide. Yes, you get a loose bowel again. But take the same amount of magnesium as magnesium glycinate, and of course it's a different story. Not only do, do you not get the runs, you actually absorb a lot more of the magnesium gram for gram. So it would be legally disproportionate to apply the level derived from magnesium oxide to magnesium glycinate. This means that 
If the level for magnesium oxide was set and applied to all other forms of magnesium, the law would prevent those needing higher levels of magnesium from getting it, even if the form they wanted to take was not capable of causing them any kind of adverse effect, offering them only benefits. The third major reason we shouldn't rely on risk-only assessment methods is that not all population groups and individuals respond in the same way. We are all individuals and any progressive approach to nutritional science must be personalized and not one size fits all. So the requirements, benefits and risks of too much or too little of a given micronutrient and form is going to be different for say a pregnant or lactating woman as compared with say a sedentary male office worker or an elderly person in a care home. And the fourth challenge we have to grapple with is that most micronutrients don't have comprehensive risk or benefit data. Ideally, we want full dose response data to create lovely dose response curves for each risk or benefit parameter. In reality, we tend to only have little bits and pieces of reliable data that we can use to help understand these complex relationships. On top of that, while we might have limited data from clinical trials, we also need to take into account what's been learned over many years by clinical nutritionists, orthomolecular and integrative doctors and practitioners who've been using therapeutic doses of micronutrients safely for many decades. The MRB model is the only model available that takes all four of these challenges fully into account. The origin of the MRB model can be traced back to 2004 and a theoretical concept developed by Professor Andrew Renwick and colleagues working on behalf of ILSI Europe, the European chapter of the International Life Sciences Institute that has had a long working relationship with EU institutions, including the European Commission and the European Food Safety Authority, EFSA. The work culminated in a paper published by Renwick and colleagues in the Journal of Chemical Toxicology in 2004 called Risk-Benefit Analysis of Micronutrients. This theoretical paper was designed to give risk managers like the European Commission and national regulators a better and more scientific way of assessing what maximum and minimum amounts of food supplements might be allowed by EU member states. This was obviously a provision that needed to be fulfilled as part of the framework Food Supplements Directive passed in 2002. While the paper was totally theoretical, it proposed that dose response curves for both benefits and risks could be approximated using a few pieces of readily available data. Some of it already worked out and agreed by broad consensus by health authorities. These include values like the estimated average requirement, or EAR, and the tolerable upper level, or TUL. But because the data were few and far between, it was deemed that coefficients of variation be applied to these curves. The authors proposed using coefficients that had already been used in other settings when it came to foods, nutrients, and potential toxins. Unsurprisingly, Renwick and colleagues opted for a conservative and precautionary approach, proposing a coefficient of variation of 15% for the benefit curve and a lot more, 45% for the risk curve. The theoretical model proposed the optimal intake for a given population for which the data had been selected could be determined by the intersection point of these two curves. 
But the scientists also made clear there should be scope to allow levels higher than this, especially if the risk to the most sensitive populations was mild and self-limiting, especially if these higher doses would allow other population groups to experience significant benefits. So the model introduced this idea of a sliding scale of risk and benefit instead of hard numbers. So while the, they proposed that the point at which the risk and benefit dose response curves intersected might represent a theoretical optimum intake for the general population, there should actually be a sliding scale of intakes that could take into account by the risk management when, when determining policy. Um, and, and of course the risk manager being typically the regulator or health authority. So in lots of ways, this is no different to how risk is managed in other areas of the food supply, whether it's how we manage allergens like gluten or dairy or other foodstuffs that have risks and benefits like sugars or fats. Labeling becomes a very important mechanism in the risk management process where those who are at risk are properly informed about the risks on the label and while those who are less susceptible to risk would derive benefit from larger amounts of the foodstuffs, they aren't denied access. What also shouldn't be forgotten is that Renwick's theoretical model emphasized that if risk managers were to develop policy from risk-benefit curves, they should take into account the nature, severity, and likely duration of any risks involved. After we comprehensively exposed the problems of risk-only models back in 2010, we commissioned the Dutch contract research organization, TNO, to help develop Renwick and colleagues' theoretical model into one that could be used practically. This work culminated in the paper by Lisette Krull and colleagues published in 2017 in the journal Critical Reviews in um, Food Science and Nutrition. The model was developed with the intention of explaining to risk managers and regulators how it could be used in practical terms, and it used two demo cases of real-world nutrients, folate and iron. We'll explain the outputs for these nutrients in more detail in a moment when we show how the model works. We're now in this third stage of the process of bringing the MRB model to the attention of regulators, academics, the food supplement industry and the public. That's involved making the workings of the model open source so anyone can input data and get results. As with any data, what comes out of the model is as good as the quality of the data that goes into it. So by making it open source, we can start the process of people inputting different data, getting different results, engaging in dialogue, and hopefully coming up with some kind of consensus. That's the way that science should work, although obviously we've seen very little of this uh, of late in the scientific community. So together with Dr. Jaap Hannekamp from the University College Roosevelt in, in the Netherlands and William Briggs, PhD, known in the USA as the statistician to the stars, we've released a preprint paper that puts the MRB model along with two additional demo cases of vitamin B6 and magnesium into the public domain. We're now in the process of getting this published in a peer-reviewed journal. Then starts stage four, the advocacy stage, in which we take the model to the academics, to the bureaucrats, politicians, and the public, before we see any more countries coming up with ludicrously low maximum permitted levels. 
The model is based on understanding the relationship between two curves. One represents the dose response in relation to benefit, the second the dose response in relation to risk. When you graph these curves, like any graph, you need two axes, a horizontal or x-axis and a vertical or y-axis. So in the case of these two curves, the x-axis is the dosage or daily intake that might be measured in, say, milligrams or micrograms per day, and the y-axis is the incidence or frequency of the particular response in a given population. Typically, we'll be looking at really common instances that affect, say, 10%, in other words, 1 in 10 of the population at one end, and very low incidences that affect just 1 in a million at the other. These can be described as numbers, as percentage incidences. The high end, 1 in 10, as 0.1. The low end, 1 in a million, being 0.0001. So let's now draw these two curves hypothetically. This is just a revision, of course, of the figure 7 in the Renwick et al. paper from 2004. First, we draw the vertical or y-axis, which represents the percentage incidence. 10% sits at the top of the axis, this incidence being the same as 1 in 10. And at the origin or bottom of this axis, you see the 0.0001, which is equivalent to 1 in a million. The horizontal or x-axis is, of course, the daily dosage or intake that will typically measured, be measured in micrograms or milligrams of the micronutrient. Now for the curves. Let's draw them in a similar way to Renwick and colleagues in their seminal 2004 paper. First, the benefit curve starts on the left-hand side, and as we find ever smaller numbers of people benefiting from ever higher doses, it shifts to the right as we move down the curve. Then let's draw the incidence of risk curve, starting on the right and going in the opposite direction. So in a perfect world with sufficient dose-response data, the two curves will always at some point intersect. You'll remember that Renwick and colleagues call this the optimum intake, but that's somewhat theoretical and only accounts for the specific most sensitive risk and assumes the EAR is accurate and isn't restricted only to the basic requirement to avoid nutritional deficiency, which is, of course, the limitation in nearly all cases when we draw data from government health authorities. But as we'll see shortly, using real data in the MRB model, as in the Krull et al. paper by TNO, or our preprint publication with Dr. Hanekamp, when we look at incidences of between 1 in 10 and 1 in a million, the two curves often don't intersect within the range of incidences. So just as Renwick and colleagues stated in their 2004 paper, everything to the left of the benefit curve represents the dose range that reflects an absence of benefit. Moving across to the risk curve, the doses to the right side of this curve reflect a potential risk of toxicity, normally the most sensitive risk or sign of toxicity to the most sensitive population group. Now here's the most important part of the graph, the area between the two curves above the point at which they intersect. We can think of this as the risk management zone. That's the zone where the risk manager gets to explore the sweet spot between public health, consumer protection, and freedom of choice. We talked about the sliding scale of doses in relation to risks and benefits earlier. Well, this is where it all plays out. 
Risk managers using good quality data would be expected to stay inside the risk management zone to the right side of the benefit curve, not to incur risks of inadequate intake and to the left side of the risk curve to not incur risks of excessive intake. But within this zone, the risk manager needs to make decisions based on what incidences are going to be acceptable for minor self-limiting adverse events and which incidences will apply to more serious and even irreversible adverse events, all in the context of knowing how this impacts those who are not so sensitive and derive benefits from higher doses. Typically, as Renwick and colleagues have suggested, risk managers would also accept an incidence risk of 1 in 100 or even 1 in 10 if the effect is mild and self-limiting, especially if that same dose offers benefits at the same incidence. Conversely, if the adverse event is a serious one, such as liver toxicity from long-term high-dose intake of, say, preformed vitamin A, the risk manager will probably apply a much lower incidence, such as 1 in 10,000. Not only that, the risk manager would also use a graded approach to risk management, um, ensuring that there is adequate labelling to protect these sensitive groups, however few they are likely to be in number. So in the case of preformed vitamin A, it might be along the lines of do not consume high-dose vitamin A over, say, 3,000 micrograms retinol equivalents for more than two consecutive weeks without consultation with a suitably qualified and experienced health professional. The UK Food Standards Agency has developed already a range of label advisory statements for high-dose vitamins and minerals. And these are a really useful starting point for other risk managers in Europe. Now let's see where the rubber meets the road. What happens when we plug some real data into the MRB model? We're going to show this first with the data from the Lisette Krull paper by TNO that use iron and folate as demo cases. Let's start with iron, where two different forms of iron were compared, iron sulfate and iron bisglycinate. The data for this is shown on page 3743 of the journal in Table 5. It looks like this. Just as we've already discussed, the incidences in the left column run from 1 in 10 through to 1 in a million. But what you can see straight away is that the intake in milligrams in the risk curve for iron bisglycinate is a lot higher than for iron sulfate, reflecting the safer profile of iron bisglycinate. What we can do next is plot the benefit risk curves. This is what it looks like when you plot the iron sulfate data from the crawl paper. Here you can see the benefit risk intersection point at just over 10 milligrams. And we know from nutritional surveys, many people in Europe consume less than this. But it's the zone above this that the risk managers need to focus on, remembering this doesn't apply to all forms of iron, just iron sulfate. We know a lot about the symptoms of excessive intake of iron sulfate. They're mild and reversible, and they're linked to gastrointestinal upsets, such as constipation, diarrhea, gut cramps, or an upset gut. The symptoms are nearly always temporary and disappear once a person reduces his or her dose. 
Therefore, a risk manager should be quite happy to allow a level of iron sulfate that applies at a 1 in 100 incidence level for the risk curve, or even 1 in 10 if there is enough advisory information given on labeling. That would equate to between 20 and 30 milligrams for a daily maximum. Now let's look at iron bisglycinate. Here's the iron bisglycinate data plotted from the crawl paper. Firstly, notice the intersection point is below the bottom of the y-axis scale, which represents one in a million. What you also notice is the big gap, cleavage even, between the two curves, meaning there's a wide risk management zone for the risk manager to play with. Because the symptoms are so mild and reversible, we can also deal with the upper end of incidences, giving us maximum values of 40 to 50 milligrams per day, around double the range for iron sulfate using the same model. Another thing to recognize is that if we were looking at the therapeutic benefits of iron, the benefit curve would actually be considerably further to the right, giving a risk-benefit intersection that's a lot higher. That's why we need to ensure the model is open source allowing different academics and clinicians to input different data according to their experience and knowledge base. Let's now take a look at the other demo case in the CRUEL paper. This one is for folic acid. Notice here again the intersection point occurs at incidences less than one in a million, as well as the wide cleavage for the risk management zone. Here you can see there's no basis for limiting folic acid below 1,000 micrograms per day. This shows just how problematic is the 200 micrograms of folic acid maximum set for the general population in Germany by the BFR, or even the 400 micrograms for prenatal women. To the contrary, we see that most people would benefit and do well with no sign of any toxicity, taking as much as 3,000 micrograms per day. Krulatal didn't do an analysis for the polyglutamic forms of folate, like calcium methylfolate or the glucosamine-bound form. That's because they didn't have the data from EFSA at the time. But they did state that bioavailabilities are known to be less for natural polyglutamic folate, so the risk-benefit profile might be different. The inference is that the risk curve would be likely skewed further to the right of the graph, allowing for an even wider risk management zone and higher doses without any risk of excessive intake. Now, now let's briefly look at the two demo cases used in our paper with Dr. Hanekamp and put the, that put the MRB model into the public domain by making it open source. Let's look at the magnesium data first. Here we see how real-world data takes us a considerable way from Renwick's theoretical model. Not only do we have an intersection point for magnesium that's off the scale, we see it's off the top of the graph, not the bottom. The intersection point, if you were to extrapolate beyond the limits of the graph, probably equates to a theoretical optimal intake that's around 400 milligrams. In other words, a little over the EU nutrient reference value of 375 milligrams a day. So what's the maximum level for supplements set by the BFR in Germany? Well, it's just 250 milligrams a day for magnesium because it accounts for some additional intake from food sources that certainly can't be guaranteed. But the kicker is this, 
look how the risk and benefit curves are the other way around compared with our previous curves. The risk curve is so far to the left because it's based on one form, magnesium oxide, that causes osmotic diarrhea or loose stools at very low levels, much lower levels than those needed for good health where magnesium is delivered in better forms. That would be either through the diet in the form of leafy green vegetables, avocados, nuts and other natural sources, or from supplemental forms like magnesium citrate, 3-inate, or glycinate. So you can see that to avoid risks of inadequacy, you still need to be the right side of the green benefit curve, but that puts you at risk of a loose bowel caused by osmotic diarrhea. This shouldn't mean banning high-dose magnesium products, but rather using a graded risk management approach that allows risk for the more problematic forms like magnesium oxide or sulfate to be clearly stated on labels and new curves created for other forms like citrate or glycinate that aren't associated with the same osmotic diarrhea issues even at substantially greater doses. The key is to make sure that people can access the beneficial doses they need even if it's a divided daily dose. That means that allowing doses of magnesium of say 600 milligrams or more per day for these safer forms with advisory statements included on labels to cover off possible reactions among the most sensitive. The final case we're going to look at is that of vitamin B6. Out of interest, we've calculated two different risk curves based on data from two different approximations of the effective dose 50 or ED50 value for risk being 100 milligrams or 200 milligrams. These correlate respectively to the upper level and no observable adverse effect levels set by the Institute of Medicine or IM, now the National Academy of Medicine in the US. These data are also based on only one form of B6, peroxidine, which is the form that's been associated with vitamin B6-induced toxicity, primarily in lab animals like rats, mice, guinea pigs, and dogs, that can cause a range of neurological effects, some which can be quite serious or even permanent. But this only happens with extremely high doses maintained over long periods. With lab animals, we're generally talking about in the range of grams per kilogram body weight. The case of humans, we're limited to very few case reports, but the pattern, with one exception that we'll mention shortly, is for sensory neuropathy not to show up at intake levels less than 500 milligrams a day, taken long, long term for months on end. That's why we had no option but to ditch the Dalton and Dalton study from 1987, as used by EFSA, which has been comprehensively shown to be fundamentally flawed. Even EFSA thinks it's flawed, but like the BFR and other EU risk assessors or managers, it's the one study they can use, flawed as it is, to continue to help the EU regulators to justify very low levels of vitamin B6 and supplements. Because any good scientific method must rely on reliable data, we use the US data because it's not fatally flawed by using the Dalton and Dalton study. Looking at the plot of the benefit curve and the two risk curves again, you'll see the kind of levels such as 3.5 milligrams set by the BFR makes no sense at all. That's especially the case if you apply 
policy based on pyridoxine to the other main form, pyridoxamine, that includes the all-important bioactive form, pyridoxal 5-phosphate, that's never been associated with any neurological issues at any dose. So even for pyridoxine, a daily dose of, say, 40 to 60 milligrams would be safe for the vast majority of people. And of course, much higher level levels than this should apply to pyridoxamine forms, as they've never been associated with any of the neurological issues that cause the risk curves for pyridoxine to be where they are. So that's a rundown on the MRB model and how it works. You'll hopefully have seen how the MRB model really shows up the problems of existing risk-only approaches. But what you've also seen, such as with the examples of magnesium and vitamin B6, like any model, it's only as good as the data that goes into it. Another important point is the model has the added complication of providing a risk management zone between the risk and benefit curves that allows the risk manager to make informed decisions when giving graded risk management advice or developing policy. No, it's not quite as black and white as some might like. It doesn't just punch out a number for the maximum and another for the minimum level, nor does it automatically cater for differences between different forms like magnesium oxide or magnesium glycinate. You have to select the data and plug them into the model and look at the output in terms of the known science and clinical experience. Let's remember the different way that humans respond to different micronutrient forms aren't black and white either with people varying widely in their response to different micronutrient forms and delivery systems. The European Court of Justice has repeatedly ruled on the importance of using the most reliable scientific data and the most recent results of international research. This extract is taken from the ruling of our case on food supplements back in 2005. Science has been in for a battering in recent years. When it comes to the science we need to keep our bodies healthy using natural substances, we can't afford to rely on substandard science that is deemed acceptable by certain industry interests, but really doesn't reflect the latest nutritional science or provide a basis for freedom of choice. We implore you to work with us at ANH Europe to help place pressure on the European institutions and national regulators in the EU and Europe to transition from defunct risk-only models for establishing maximum permitted levels of micronutrients to the MRB risk-benefit model. Presently, the MRB model represents the only model designed to specifically for micronutrients that takes into account both risk and benefit. We urge you to support ANH in our advocacy to help get the MRB model accepted by health authorities and regulators. That is, before they limit any further, our public access to supplemental nutrients that are ever more necessary in a world in which our food supply is becoming more and more simplified, limited and controlled. Thank you.